I start using this magnificent machine to stack all of these narratives, these stories about why I am freaked out. And in some perverse way, I find that comforting because it's an explanation. We love explanations. I'm not really stressed because of all these stories I'm telling myself. I'm telling myself these stories because I'm stressed. How should I start a uh, series on emuna and anxiety? Emuna is the Hebrew word for faith. Um, a Jewish spiritual perspective on this very, very hot topic that I've, everyone's so interested in today. I, I don't think there's a better way to start it than with a classic Jewish joke. So, uh, one night, Abe is tossing and turning, and his wife, Sarah, says to him, uh, Abe, dear, what's going on? Why are you tossing and turning? And he says, well, I borrowed $1,000. And it's due, the loan is due tomorrow. I have to pay it. And I don't have a cent. And I, I just am so worried, I can't sleep. So Sarah says to Abe, Abe, dear, who, who did you borrow the $1,000 from? Who do you owe the money to? He says, well, actually, it's, uh, it's our neighbor in this building. Uh, he lives upstairs. You know, you know Morris, right? She says, yes, of course I know Morris. Well, I owe him the money. The money's due tomorrow morning. And I, I, I don't have a dollar. I don't have a, I don't have a penny. I don't have any of it. I'm just beside myself with worry, and I, I can't sleep. So Sarah says to Abe, Abe, don't worry. She goes to the window. She opens the window, and she says, Morris! <laughs> and all of a sudden, they hear a window upstairs open up. He says, yeah. She says, that's you. He says, yeah. Sarah says, uh, did my husband Abe borrow $1,000 from you, which is due to pay back tomorrow? He says, yeah. She says, he doesn't have any of it. She closes the window. She turns around. She says, you can sleep now, Abe. Morris is going to worry. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about um, the God-given survival mechanism that is productive and useful where we react to negative stimuli and it helps us to, to remain safe. And I want to talk about the exact same physiological mechanisms which are triggered by stuff that there's absolutely nothing we can do about and therefore it's a complete, complete waste of time and energy. And, and as I'm about to go into this, I just want to make a major disclaimer here. My training and my qualifications are solely, exclusively within the rabbinate. I'm a rabbi. I know a lot of people who know my work make certain assumptions about credentials that I have, but I can assure you my only certification is my rabbinical ordination. I'm not a mental health professional. I do admit, and I sometimes talk about the fact that my father, maybe he well, is a psychologist, and I did grow up in the home of a psychologist, which does account for some of my anxiety and other issues as well. There's no one as messed up as the children of the psychologist. Um, yeah, but I am not a mental health professional, and I'm not attempting to describe any of these things um, with any type of authority. If I make any reference to anxiety, I'm not attempting to do so in any clinical fashion. Uh, more so, what I'm referencing are popular usages, the way that people now colloquially use these terms. Uh, like when you heard the title, Anxiety, in tonight's talk, what drew you to come here is probably some type of understanding about what that means. So I, I'm just using the term in the same type of way. So I mentioned there are these uh, reactions that we have, which are God-given, as a believer, I have to believe that they are God-given. Others would say that they are, uh, what do you call, biologically advantageous and developed through evolution. I, I, that's really not my point tonight. So I, what, all I want to say is there are reactions that people have to distress, which are important for survival. Um, and again, I see it as that's how God made us. When you are walking down the street and suddenly you hear something uh, and you can't exactly make out what is that sudden noise and you can't identify, is that a threat? So there's a reason why um, 
you have a rush of chemicals, you have the cortisol and the adrenaline and the, your heart pumps and you sweat and your pupils dilate. There, there are productive reasons for that. And it's so that we can quickly decide how to deal with the situation, fight or flight, uh, get out of there or, or try to engage with the threat, whatever it may be. And, and that's all very important and we wouldn't want it any other way. I mean, yeah, I mean, ideally we would want that there shouldn't be negative, negative stimuli at all, but, and when Mashiach comes and the world is perfect, there won't be. But until such a time that there are no threats and no negative things in the world, obviously it's good to have a built-in alarm system. That's a good thing. Okay. And it's good that the alarm system uses uh, cues that get our attention, and also not only get our attention, but prepare us for some quick uh, action. So all of the, that, those phys physiological responses are, are good. They're a good thing. Okay. That's if we're actually responding to stimuli in our environment. What if, however, we're having the physiological response, the stomach ache, the tight throat, the, the headache, whatever it is, and each of us experience these symptoms a little bit differently, um, when we get that adrenaline dump in our bloodstream. But what if we're not reacting to any stimuli in our environment, we're reacting to our thoughts, our own thoughts. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. We ha we're, gonna, we're, going, we're going to be doing this for three weeks. It's a three-week series. There are many different aspects of anxiety, but... For tonight, I just want to zero in on what do you do when your body is going into survival mode as a reaction or a response to your own thoughts? Sometimes that's not what's causing it, and we, we can talk about that in the coming uh, evenings. But tonight, I want to talk about what, when, what about when it is in, in response to our own thoughts. So, uh, maybe we can start to, uh, we can be biblical for a minute. I told you I'm a rabbi, so it shouldn't surprise you too much. Um, I'll, I'll go to the wisdom of, of King Solomon, Shlomo Melech, the wisest of all men. And he wrote in his book, uh, Mishlei, the Proverbs, Daga Velev ish, a worry in the heart of man, yashchena. Yashchena means uh, subjugate it. Some, some read the verse, it subjugates him, the worry subjugates his heart. Or you could read it, he should subjugate it. What does this mean? This is the, this is the verse in Hebrew, in the original Hebrew. So this is the subject of a discussion in the Talmud, specifically in Tractate Yuma Dafayin Hey Omed Aleph 75a, Folio 75a, in Machlekes Reb Ami and Reb Asi, two of the Amarayim, two of the uh, sages of the era of the Talmud. So sometimes the way the sages extract meaning from, from Scripture, uh, as you know, or many of you may know, that the Bible is written without vowels. Hebrew is written with uh, consonants uh, only. There are, is a system of vowels, but that's uh, not included in the, in the Bible. And, and there's a reason for that. The reason is because multiple layers or levels of meaning are meant to be included in every word of Scripture. So sometimes a rabbinic exegesis is a process of unpacking layers of meaning from the words of Scripture by introducing different ways of, of vocalizing or vowelizing the same, the same word. So in the original Scripture, it says yashchena. So Reb Ami and Reb Asi both read it two different ways. And please remember, whenever there is a difference of opinion of the sages, it is not an actual debate or disagreement. It is Elu Elu Both of these and these are the words of the living God. In other words, the truth is much larger than one perspective. 
I know in today's day and age, we all live in our search engine bubbles and we've all been radicalized toward the most extreme version of whatever political opinion we had in the 90s. <laughs> and then by this point, everybody is basically completely a caricature of their original views. I know that. No offense, but that's if you have uh, internet access, that's what's happened to your brain. So, which is prob probably also part of the anxiety, which we'll talk about uh, later. But um, I know in 2023, thank God we don't write checks anymore, because I'd be throwing out a lot of. You know, remember we used to write checks, and you you wouldn't be able to write the correct year until like April. Okay. At any rate, so I know that we all have extreme uh, views. And we like to have real black and white views. It's either this or it's that. But in the, in the case where our sages have divergent opinions about uh, their interpretation of scripture or any, or any other matter, um, both perspectives are valid perspectives and different ways of looking at the truth. The truth is more nuanced then can be expressed or contained within one vantage point. So we need both of these, Reb Ami and Reb Asi. So <clears throat> they read it like this. Uh, and as I said, this is the Gemara in Yuma. Chad Omer Yasi Cheno. He pronounces the shin as a sin. Those who know Hebrew will be able to follow what that is. Yasi Cheno Midaitoi. Hesachadas. Remove it from your mind. Ignore it. Forget about it. Don't think about it. Vechad Omer, the other one says, Yisechena, Yisechena, Yisechena le'acherim, from the word sicha, conversation. Speak it out to others, le'acherim, to others. Very different approaches. One is saying, ignore it. The other is saying, talk about it. Well, which one is it? They're very different. One is saying, pretend it's not there. That's the first opinion. The other one is, I'm going to lean into it. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to articulate it. I'm going to explain what it is. So as I said, both of these are valid approaches. And I want to talk a little bit about where and when each one of these is appropriate and uh, how to apply them. So... I'll, I'll introduce another verse from, from King Solomon for a moment here. This is from uh, Kehalas, or what they call Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 29. Shlaim Melech says, Lavad matsosi. But see, I found another thing. I found another truth. That God made a person yosher. Yosher means straight. But probably the more literal... Uh, translation in this context would be straightforward, like simple, not complicated. People are not complicated. The way God made the way God made us. King Solomon continues and says, "The Hema, however, they, the people themselves, vikshu rabim. They seek out many calculations or many reasons. So, objectively speaking, human beings are pretty simple. But subjectively speaking, the way that we experience being human, uh, we can complicate it. What does that mean? It means, as I was saying before, um, Hashem created us a certain way, and we understand why He created us that way, and He gave us the ability to respond to adverse stimuli. And that's a good thing. Now, sometimes we get it wrong. You know, we're not always 100% accurate in assessing a threat. Or sometimes we assess a threat and then we realize that it's not a threat. But it's better to be uh, safe than sorry. It's better to be a little bit more vigilant, and then once you've determined that it's safe, so you could dismiss it and you move on. So that's a good thing. Um, so it's not so complicated, really not so complicated. My maker gave me this wonderfully sophisticated system that, for my own benefit, freaks out from time to time. It's not a bug, it's a feature. Okay? It's not so complicated. 
However, <laughs> like King Solomon says, God made us simple, we complicate it. What happens? What happens? If we don't understand this, if we don't understand that this is the way that our maker and his infinite wisdom designed us, the mind-body package, we start to search for a coherent narrative to explain why we're feeling the way we're feeling. We love narratives. We love stories. We love explanations. That's what human beings do. They always want to figure out patterns. Well, why is something this way? What's the cause? What's the effect? And uh, we're not that good at it. Sometimes we don't distinguish between correlation and causation, but we're comforted by it. We find it comforting to have an explanation. So, for instance, maybe... My heart is pounding, and I'm sweating, and my stomach isn't digesting food very well because my blood is being pumped to my legs so I can run, and it's being diverted from my digestive organs because that's of secondary importance, according to my built-in God-given alarm system. And, and, and the reason is just because there are some cues in my environment that are telling my survival mechanism, that, hey, it might be good to pay attention and just make sure that you're safe. That's, that's not so complicated. That's simple. Now, we'll talk about later, I think, not tonight, about when the alarm system is broken. Okay, but, but for now, let's just talk about the fact that um, the, the reaction, the physiological reaction, is not such a mystery. It's really, it's not such a mystery. What happens, though, is Hashem made us simple, and we seek many calculations. We seek these complex narratives, which in our mind <laughs> make the situation more understandable and therefore feel more comforting. But actually, what are we doing? We're driving ourselves insane. What do we do? We say, aha, I know why I'm going into fight-or-flight mode. It's because. It's because. And we give ourselves a reason. Now, one of the ways that you can tell that these reasons are not valid, if you get good at it, you can start to realize right away they're not, they're not valid. But even if you're a beginner, one way that you can sort of sense that these reasons are not so valid is what we call stacking what we call stacking, that I'm feeling anxious, I'm having physiological symptoms of being not at ease, and then I start thinking, oh, you know what it is, it's uh, my credit cards are due tomorrow, okay, maybe, yeah, maybe that is it, maybe that is why you woke up with a stomachache, is because your credit cards are due tomorrow, I don't think that's really it, because Why'd you wake up with the stomach? Right? But let, let's say maybe that's it. But then you wait another half a minute. My credit cards are due tomorrow. And I have a meeting at work with a very difficult client, and I'm really dreading that. So you start stacking. <laughs> and we're out of milk. We're out of milk. And when am I going to get the milk? And, uh, and now, and I'm late for work, and I'm having a bad hair day, and whatever, you, you just start stacking, and some of them are big things, some of them are little things. So what is that clear, clearly an indication of, okay? None of those are the reason. Those are explanations. So I'm, my, my body is in a state of, of fight or flight, and then, which is a simple thing, it's a survival thing, but my powerful, powerful human brain starts seeking explanations. And the problem is, I believe those explanations. And then those become very um, beloved bedtime stories. Those stories that I write. And I literally mean bedtime stories because you're trying to fall asleep, right? Normally bedtime stories are stories that are told to soothe the child to go to sleep. These are 
the opposite. These are the stories we keep ourselves up with at night. And instead of realizing that maybe I'm just overstimulated, maybe I just need some chamomile tea and I need a hot shower and I need to get into bed and I need to turn off the lights and I need to put away the screens. Instead of that, what do I do? I start using this magnificent machine to stack all of these narratives, these stories about why I am freaked out. And in some perverse way, I find that comforting. Because it's an explanation. We love explanations. Rather than just saying, you know what? I'm wound up right now. Maybe I need to drink more water. Maybe I need to get more exercise. Maybe I need medication. But I'm not really stressed because of all these stories I'm telling myself. I'm telling, my, I'm telling myself these stories because I'm stressed. You follow what I'm saying? So if that's the case, and so often it is, this is why one of our two rabbinic opinions tells us when you have a worry on the heart, ignore it. Don't think about it. Avert it from your mind. Because it's not the real reason anyway. You're not going to get anywhere. Remember, we were talking about the difference between responding to stimuli in our immediate environment and anxiety about something that is not in the here and now, so, not something I can react to. It's Abe worrying about the loan that's due tomorrow morning, or I guess now Morris is worrying about it. So in, in that case, there's nothing productive with that story. The story is a fantasy. The story is actually taking us out of if there were any productive action, course of action to be, to be pursued at this moment, and, and sometimes there's not, but even if there were, the story is taking us away from that because the story is a projection about a future. And then there's a whole other discussion, which is the flip side of the same coin, which are when you stay up at night cringing about all the embarrassing moments from your past that you're sure that everyone in the world still talks about <laughs> regularly, right? So, but that's, that's the same thing. That's one, one is looking in the past. The other one is looking in the future. Either way, there's not anything you can do to, be re, to, to react and to be, to be productive in, in, about something that either took place in the past or may or may not take place in the future. Okay, so again, these are stories. They're not, actual, they're not actual realities. They're not happening now. These are stories we tell ourselves. If, if it's about the past, then, then that's regret and resentment. If it's about the future, then we call it anxiety and worry. But either way, those are stories we tell ourselves. But again, we're not stressed because of the story. We're telling ourselves the story because we're stressed. So... Like, again, like I'm saying, maybe you need to drink more water, and we all do. And maybe you need to cut down on screen time, and we all do. And maybe you need to go on a, on a news fast for a month. I promise you, the, the same craziness will be going on a month from now. You could go on a news fast for a month. Um, or maybe you need to minimize uh, unnecessary um, interactions that you're having with people who are... Who are, who are uh, not safe people, maybe, that, maybe that's the source of it. I mean, there's a lot of things maybe you need to be doing to minimize stress in your life, but the story that we're telling ourselves at night when we can't sleep is usually not the real story. And the best proof of it is these stories usually have nothing that you can do about them. You know, you know the difference between anxiety and fear? I mean, in, in English, the way they use these terms, anxiety and fear, but it's, it's a biblical concept, anxiety and fear. When, when, when the Jews came out of Egypt, so you know the story. I mean, I'm assuming once a year at least you get together at the Passover Seder and you read the Maxwell House and you know about the whole story about coming out of Egypt, right? Okay. So you know seven days after the Exodus, there was a splitting of the sea, right? Okay, so 
during the splitting of the sea, there's a song that Moses and the Jewish people sang. And in this song, one of the things they speak about is how at that point in history, the whole world was in awe of the Jewish people because they'd just been miraculously uh, redeemed from slavery, coming out of the most powerful nation in the world. And there were 10 plagues and then they came to the sea and there was a splitting of the sea, which is also miraculous. And it was a miracle that the whole world knew about. So the term that's used there, and actually those who pray three times a day know that this is actually part of our morning prayers. We, we say this poetry, which is actually from the book of Exodus, from the Parsha of uh, Beshalach. So we say the words, that the, I'll translate it as the dread and the fear of the Jewish people at that point uh, fell upon the people around them. So what, what's, what's the difference between these two words, Ema and Pachad? So Rashi tells us, the foremost commentator, and he bases this on the words of the Michilta, which is the uh, Hamedrash. He says that Ema is on Rechaikim and Pachad is on Kravim. That Ema is felt regarding things that are far and Pachad is felt about things that are close. And it proceeds to explain that there were nations that were nearby, that were in the path that the Israelites were taking. So they had pachad. They actually saw these legions coming. And for them, it was a response to stimuli. Other nations heard reports of this. They saw it on the news. So they had ema. It wasn't happening in their lives, but they knew it was going on in the world, and they related to it. Being a human being, you relate to that kind of stimulus, and then what do you do? You put yourself into that narrative. So, very simple, ema and pachad. So if there is a dog barking in front of your house, and, you're, and you don't see an owner around, and yet you don't recognize the dog, and you have to go outside, that's pachad. Now, the dog may be safe, the dog may not be safe, but you'll make a decision, and that decision is a productive decision. You'll, you'll figure out what to do. So that's helpful. But let's say you heard about on the news that in California, a wild dog got out and bit a girl. And now you're stressed. And being a human being with that powerful mind, you created a narrative, you project yourself into that narrative, but there's nothing productive to respond to. There's nothing happening in your environment. There's nothing happening. There are no actual stimuli that you need to respond to for any productive purpose. So there, that's the difference between fear and anxiety, the ema and the pachad. Pachad is fear. That's productive. There's a threat. You have to assess the, de the degree of the threat and make a productive decision. That's pachet, fear. Ema, anxiety, is about something you can't really see, you can't touch, you can't hear, you heard about it, you heard reports, you heard secondhand reports, thirdhand reports, and your real response to it is coming from your meditation, and yes, I call it a meditation that you're going through in your mind. Sometimes we call it the museum the museum in your head that you visit and you're the curator and you've designed those exhibits to be very uh, powerful, to evoke very strong emotions, this museum. This is the museum that you go visit one in the morning, two in the morning, three in the morning. The museum to your, to your suffering, <laughs> to, your, <sighs> to your complicated life. Okay, so it makes sense then that at least according to one rabbinic opinion, King Solomon's wisdom is if that's what's going on, forget about it. It's not real. If it were pachad, meaning if it were an actual response to something in your life, then respond to it and make a decision. If there's someone you got to get away from, there's something you got to get away from, someone you got to speak to, someone you got to confront, fight, flight, whatever it may be, okay, that's productive. That'll keep you safe. 
But I'm talking about one in the morning, two in the morning, three in the morning, your intense emotional reaction is to a movie that you're playing in your head. So in that case, the sage advice of King Solomon, at least according to one of the rabbinic opinions to Reb Ami, is forget about it. Don't reason with it <laughs> because it can't be reasoned with because it's not actually logical. You know, there's, a, there's an old Yiddish expression. You can't, ask story, you can't ask a question on a story. Jews love to ask questions. Everything we ask a question, we challenge, because that's how we learn. That's how we learn, you ask a question. But there's an expression in Yiddish, you don't ask a question on a story. And what that means is, if somebody tells you a story and you say, oh, well, why did he say that? And by the way, when I, when I say a story, I primarily mean a real story, a story that happened, true story. So if someone tells you a story, you don't stop and say, oh, well, why did he say that? What do you mean, why did he say it? That's what he said. That's what happened, right? So you don't ask questions on stories. It's just, that's just what happened. If somebody explains an idea, you could ask them a question because maybe the idea is valid, maybe it's not valid, maybe you want to give them pushback so that they should explain the idea, they should prove the idea, they should argue in defense of the idea. But stories, you don't give pushback in a story. The story is the story. You understand what I'm saying? You don't, you don't argue with a story. That's what these stories are. They're just stories. You can't argue with them. You can't, <laughs> you can't actually get anywhere by asking yourself, well, really, why me? Why is my life so uniquely messed up in that particular way? Like that, <laughs> like let's say you really lean into it and, and, and you decide to like have a sit down with that abusive voice in your head that's telling you about how your life is falling apart in a thousand different ways faster than you can possibly run around and pick up the pieces. There's nothing productive to, re to respond to that voice and say, well, yeah, explain, to, yeah, why, why is that? Why, why, why is my life so messed up? Why me? It doesn't go anywhere. Why me is a rhetorical question. There's no, there's no real answer. Because the, the only answer is, I don't know, it's a good narrative that satisfies your, your overdeveloped human thinking brain. <laughs> when you're in a state of stress and you just need to come up with an explanation for it. And so then this satisfies, oh, that's why, that's why I'm, that's why I'm stressed out. But they're, they're not legitimate explanations. And therefore, at least according to one rabbinic opinion, just dismiss it. And, and you know, the way the mind works, it's interesting. Um, there's a rabbinic metaphor or a, I guess a, an, an analogy of a mill. I don't know how many people nowadays have actually seen a mill, but you know, the, the bread that we eat comes from flour and flour comes from grain. And the way that they turn grain into flour is through a, through a mill. So you put the, the coarse kernels in the mill and a wheel turns and it crushes the kernels and then separates the, the, the edible part and it creates flour. So the metaphor is that whatever you put into the mill, if you put barley kernels into the mill, so you're going to get barley flour. If you put wheat kernels into the mill, you're going to get wheat flour. Okay, whatever you put in is what you're going to get, and the mill is always turning. It won't stop. It doesn't stop. That is the human mind. What you put in it is what you get out, and it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. So it's interesting. Action can stop. You can stop doing things. You can just freeze. Speech, you can stop. You can stop talking. Thought, you can't stop. Thought's going to keep going. And if you keep on loading in or queuing up the suffering story, which is your narrative to explain why you're sweating and your stomach's tight and your throat is tight and 
So you're going to get more and more of your reaction to that story, and it starts to become a, uh, a vicious cycle. So then what are you supposed to do? Stop the mill? You can't stop it. So what do you do? You, you load something else in it. Distraction. Distraction. Now, distraction is a double-edged sword. You've got to be very careful with your distraction. Because if you're not aware that this is a, 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 a tool, um, a, a tool that you should be using, it actually ends up becoming an addiction that uses you. When you realize that the uh, incessant yapping of the word brain that's trying to assign meaning to your physiological responses, when you realize that that is not a real intelligent story that actually has to be responded to, okay? So then you can distract yourself intelligently and say, let me go do something else. Hopefully something productive. Maybe go do a project. Maybe go help somebody. Or at the very least, a benign form of distraction. Go read a book, okay? When you don't realize that, when you don't realize that, and it's just like this terrible jackhammer noise. They're doing construction in front of your house for the past month, and you don't know when they're going to go away. And you say, when are you guys leaving? And they say, we don't know until the job's done. And there's a jackhammer going off in front of your house for a month, and it's two months and three months. How can you live like this? So what are you going to do? You start turning up the stereo full blast, and you're blasting music, right? Because you're trying not to hear the jackhammer. And, and, and you still hear it. And so you just start banging pots and pans and you start shooting off firecrackers and doing everything you can to try to drown it out. That, that's when you don't realize what's happening. So what do we do? What do we do? We try to drown out the unpleasant reactions that our body is having through distractions which and in, in some ways this this itself is the definition of addiction distractions which come to be identified in our lives as our main problem in life but which are actually our best misguided attempt at a solution to our real problem so I start blasting the stereo to try to cover up the jackhammer I'll just use the metaphor Eventually, my life becomes dysfunctional because I'm blasting a stereo. So I identify that's my problem as I just keep blasting the stereo. No, actually, your problem is that you're freaked out by the jackhammer. And when you discovered at some point in your life that blasting the stereo distracts you from that for an evening, and then it becomes for half an evening, and then it becomes for an hour, diminishing, diminishing returns as, as any addiction because you just get used to it. Okay? And then you all of a sudden you, you, you identify, well, my problem is I'm blasting the stereo. No, your problem is that you are blasting the stereo because you couldn't handle the jackhammer. And let me just say what I'm really saying is that you go through life with a pit in your stomach because maybe you're a sensitive person. Or maybe you had trauma. Who knows? I, it doesn't matter. The point is, or maybe you're just living in this generation where there's too much stimuli. Okay, whatever it is. So you're going through life with a pit in your stomach, and then you realize that lots of screen time numbs you out from that and distracts you from that. Okay? Or a chemical, uh, drinking, uh, numbs you out from that and then and distracts you from that. Or drama. That's the, the biggest addiction that people get into is drama. Yeah, getting into other people's addictions, <laughs> saving the codependent drama, right? So, but whatever it is, and then that becomes the thing that's your undoing. Oh, my whole life's falling apart because I can't stop whatever the addiction is, the, the, the gambling, the pornography, the, the drinking, the drama, the whatever. No, that was you trying your best to drown out something that was making you uncomfortable. Okay, so he's blasting the stereo because the jackhammer was making him uncomfortable. So what we're saying is that God made us very simple but we complicate it with our narrative. God gave us a survival mechanism that sometimes makes our bodies uncomfortable. It's supposed to. 
It's an effective alarm. It gets your attention. Okay? I have tinnitus. People who go to my Tanya Shir know this because I've talked about it in my Tanya Shir. Monday mornings here in uh, this very library, Levi Yitzchuk Library on Central Avenue in uh, Cedarhurst. You're all invited. I've spoken about it in the Tanya Shir, and I guess people who watch online, the Tanya Shir know about this as well. I have tinnitus. Some people pronounce it tinnitus. It's actually it's pronounced tinnitus. It's a constant ringing in the ear. I've had it for a few years. Had it for a few years. Um, I know what it is. I know exactly what it is. It's an alarm. It's my body trying to get my attention. Okay? Um, now, it's, it's awful. It is extremely unpleasant. But at least I know what it is. Imagine if I went and I tried to discover more numbing activities, which was my go-to response in the past. When I was younger, that's what I thought worked. Imagine if now at 48, I would go try to discover some more numbing things to do to distract myself from the tinnitus, and I didn't even know that that's what I was doing. I was just doing it sort of reactively, and then that becomes the new problem, because in order to drown out the unpleasant stimulus, you go and you find that new distraction, and then the distraction takes over your life and starts uh, causing uh, problems in your life. So, I don't like having it, but I know what it is. It's an alarm system. My body's trying to get my attention. My body's trying to get my attention. Maybe there are things that I need to, no, not maybe, there are things I need to do to take better care of myself. And, and it, it'll, it'll go away, and I'll, I'll get a handle on it. I'll be okay. I gotta take care of this mind-body package that God gave me. I've got to take care of it a little bit better, and it'll go away. But it's just an alarm. It's not an enemy. It's just an alarm, okay? And that's what we have to know. When the alarm goes off, whether it is literally something that sounds like an alarm, I have this ee in my ear literally 24-7. Although when I'm teaching, interestingly enough, it generally gets really, really quiet because this is when I'm comfortable. By the way, interesting, now that I'm talking about the fact how comfortable I am up here, now you realize why I go on for too long, because <laughs> this, this is where I'm This is my therapy over here. But no, I'll tell you something interesting. Uh, I hope it's interesting to you. I am never not nervous before going on. I've spoken thousands of times, literally thousands of times, and the crowd's much, much bigger than this crowd. Um, and yet every single time, including tonight, a second before I come on, I'm nervous. And it's, I, I feel it's a physiological thing. It's, I, I get a stomach ache, my throat gets hot and tight, stomach is cold, throat is, is hot, uh, a lot of other symptoms, and it's very uncomfortable. And then I get up here and I start talking and I'm fine. So tell me about Ema and Pachad, tell me about anxiety and fear. What was, what was unmanageable? Not the experience itself, the anticipation of the experience, right? As long as it was the Ema, as long as it was the anticipation of something that's going to happen, which I can't control because it's not happening now. So what am I supposed to do? Like, say a talk better that I haven't started delivering? I can't. There's nothing to do yet. And that's why it's so painful. And there's, it, 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 it causes so much, so much disruption. But at least I know what it is. I don't have the secret to make it go away. But at least I identify it. I know what it is. Then once I'm up here, I don't really have any problems because now, now there's, there, there are things that I can do. I, I'm, I'm looking in the room, I'm reading the room, I'm looking at eye contact, I'm looking when people zone out, looking how much people are looking at their phones, and, and I'm adjusting. You don't know, there's thousands of adjust, adjustments that go on while I'm talking to a group like this to make sure that we're connecting, even though I'm kind of monopolizing the conversation. <laughs> but I'm, I, it, is, it is a conversation, and it, it is two-way, and I am reading stimuli that you're projecting toward me, and I'm making adjustments. And therefore, I'm comfortable because I'm in a setting where there's something I can do. But a second before I get up here, there's nothing I can do. And therefore, I'm sick with worry. Now, I don't know how to make that go away yet, at least not at this stage of my development, but I know what it is. I know what it is. It's just my body trying to be helpful. Okay, so that's why the narrative that we assign to the physiological responses 
is just so dumb. And you want to go write novels, you want to be a fiction writer, go ahead. But don't make fiction novels about your stomach ache and then start stacking issues to be freaked out about and put yourself to bed every night with that story. Just, just don't. Okay. We mentioned there's another interpretation. You're lucky there's only two. Usually they say two Jews, three opinions. So, so we had Reb Ami and we have Reb Asi. Reb Ami said, Yasichenu. Medaitoi, remove it from your mind, avert it from your mind. Reb Asi says, Yisechena la'acherem, speak it out, converse about it with others. So which one is which? I mean, which one is right? Which one should you do? There's a reason why one comes before the other. The first reaction is dismiss it, because it's not the real cause of your discomfort right now. It's a story that you made up about your discomfort, which matches, roughly matches your discomfort, but it's not the real cause. So forget about it. Go do something different. Okay, I can't. I can't. It's incessant. It's pervasive. I'm ruminating. I can't stop. Okay, fine. So in that case, Speak it out to somebody else. In that case, if you try to avert your mind from it, and you know what it is, and you know that it's not the real problem, but it's consuming your thoughts, okay, so go speak it out with somebody. But again, see, this, this is so important. In the first case... I ignored it because I knew the story wasn't the real problem. The story was just a mythology, a personal mythology to explain a phenomenon, which actually has a very simple explanation. My body's freaked out because my, my, because my creator made me have that built-in nervous system to respond to, to what it thinks may be adverse stimuli. Okay. That's the real reason. The mythology is it's because my wife, my kids, my job. That's the mythology. Okay. So I try to dismiss that. Can't dismiss it. But I know I should because I know it's not valid. But I can't dismiss it. Fine. Can't dismiss it. Go speak to somebody. But please, when you go speak to somebody, please don't forget that this narrative you're going to share with them is still not the real reason why you're uncomfortable. That, that was... It's very interesting because time moves very slowly and time moves very fast. In my lifetime, and again, I'm repeating the fact I am not a psychologist, I'm not a mental health professional, um, but as an outside observer of the field, it is fascinating how in my lifetime certain axioms have radically shifted, specifically about how productive it is to explore these stories specifically in regards to how productive it is to, to explore these stories. A um, hundred years ago, certainly, when, when Freud was the predominant model, uh, the, they couldn't get enough of these stories. And whatever story you came in with, oh, no, we're going to go deeper and deeper and deeper, and we're going to keep on finding hidden layers of the story. We're going to go back to your toilet training, literally. I'm not saying it to be, uh, to be glib. Um, and today we realize, or at least there's much more of a, an accepted view, becoming increasingly uh, mainstream, that many times talk is not going to get us out of this. We're not going to talk our way out of it. We're not going to talk our way out of it. The alarm system's going off. So you created a story why the alarm system's going off, because it's easier than, in a, in a weird way, than admitting that you need more sleep, you need more uh, water, you need less screen time, you need to get a new job, whatever it is, okay. But the, the, the stories aren't the reason for our discomfort, and talking more and more and more and more about the stories 
is not going to relieve our discomfort. Okay, so then why do we talk about it? <laughs> then go back to the first opinion. Forget about it. Can't forget about it. Okay, so talk about it. Why, why should I talk about it? You told me it's not productive. It is productive. Oh, now you're confusing me. Okay. You should talk about it. Not because the story is the real problem. I'm going to have to explain to you the way that Chassidus explains this passage of Talmud explaining King Solomon's wisdom. Okay, three layers of rabbinical explanation. There's a Sefer Hayyem Yom compiled by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And the entry for Chof Hey Sivan, the 25th day of the Hebrew month of Sivan, which is the month of my birthday, it's like four days away from my birthday. It's almost my birthday. Um, it says this passage in the Talmud, Machloikis, avert your mind from it, speak it out to others. And it adds an insight from the Tzemach Tzedek, who was the third Chabad Rebbe, who was the grandson of the Balatanya, again, for those who come to the Monday morning Tanya Shir. It's a little tie-in for you. The Tzemach Tzedek explains, what does it mean? Yisechenu la'acherem. Explain it to others. So the Tzemach Tzedek says, la'acherem rak beguf. Others only in the corporeal sense, in the bodily sense. Avol me'uchodem itoy imay. But they are united with him. Shemargishem es inyone. They feel, they sense his situation, his matter. The Tzemach Tzedek explains it perfectly. It's not about somebody who can hear your story and decode it and say something smart. That's not who you need. It's about empathy. It's about somebody who can feel what you're feeling. And the empathy is therapeutic. It's interesting, I think it was Carl Rogers who came up with the term unconditional positive regard. He said that, uh, anyone here? Yeah, is that correct? So Carl Rogers, the American psychologist, he had a term unconditional positive regard, which basically means that a therapist has to always be on the side of their patient. Unconditional positive regard. Um, so much so, and I don't know if this is a, a contradiction or it's a, a support to this, but another American uh, psychologist, Eric Byrne, once said, no man is a hero to his wife's psychiatrist. <laughs> and I, I, I thought about that quite a bit. Um, and I think what it means is he's saying something similar to Carl Rogers, which is unconditional positive regard. When you're talking to me, I'm on your side. It's like when you go to a lawyer, and that's it. Once I'm your client, then you're on my, you know, you're going to see things my way. So no man is a hero to his wife's psychiatrist because if the psychiatrist is doing his job, he's on her side. Now, really, if he's really on her side, he should want her to have a happy marriage so he shouldn't vilify her husband, but that's a, that's a tangent. Um, the point is, they studied various different modalities of therapy, and what they found was that, to a large extent, they were all equally effective or ineffective, however you want to describe it. And what really made a difference was the therapeutic connection, the relationship with the therapist. When there was a positive connection, when the patient felt that they had the unconditional positive regard of the therapist, so then it would be productive, whatever the preferred modality of therapy chosen by the therapist might be. So it wasn't so much the approach, it was the empathy. The Lubavitcher Rebbe told a story about the Rebbe Rashab. He was the fifth Chabad Rebbe. And uh, he was actually a younger brother 
and he became the Rebbe. His older brother, Rebbe Zalman Aaron, did not become Rebbe. The Rebbe Rishab, Rebbe Shalom Ber, became the Rebbe. When they were little boys, they were playing, and you know, some kids play cops and robbers, and uh, cowboys and Indians, uh, but uh, the, the Rebbe Rishab and his brother, Rebbe Zalman Aaron, what did they play when they were playing? They played Rebbe and Chosset. So um, the older brother told the younger brother, who was about five years old at the time, I'm going to be the Rebbe, because he was the older brother, so he got to get the cool part. He says, I'm going I'm to be the Rebbe, and you're going to be the Chassid, and you're going to come in to me, and uh, we're going to have Yechidus, a one-on-one audience a meeting, like a Chassid goes to a Rebbe. So the younger brother plays his part, and he comes in, and he says, Rebbe, I need help. I ate nuts on Shabbos. What's wrong? Okay, so the Alter Rebbe says in Shulchan Aruch that it's better nuts that have shells on them, better not to eat them on Shabbos because taking off the shells could be selecting. It's one of the 39 prohibited labors. At any rate, that was his... <laughs> it's very cute because that was his example of a sin. <laughs> that was his example of a problem, right? That's what he could think of. So he says, Rebbe, I ate uh, nuts on Shabbos. So the older brother is playing Rebbe, and he says, okay, very well, my son. Um, here is your tikkun. Here is your rectification, your spiritual rectification. Um, when you pray, you should look in a prayer book. You should look inside the words. You should not say prayers by heart. You should concentrate on looking at the printed words in the prayer book from now on. And the younger brother says, You're not a rabbi. So he says, what, did I, what, what, what do you mean? I'm not a rabbi. What did I do wrong? So he says, uh, the younger brother says, A rabbi, as, as a rabbi entered, da vergebene krechts. When a Rebbe answers, he has to sigh. <sighs> and you didn't sigh, so you're not a Rebbe. It's not about who has a smart answer for you. It's about empathy. It's about the person who's going to give a krechts, who's going to sigh who's going to feel your pain. And when that happens, there is healing. The story was never the problem. The story was an assigned narrative to try to explain away why my body is in survival mode. If I can ignore the story and understand that it's just a made-up story, that's the best. If I can't, then at least let me say it to somebody. But the number one thing, or perhaps the only thing, is the person who I choose to hear this story has to be empathetic. I don't need somebody who's a genius who's going to hear the story and say, Aha! You were right all along. That is why you're miserable. No, that's the worst. I, I, I don't need that. That's the last thing I need. In fact, I don't even need somebody to say anything. I don't need them to add to my story or give an explanation of my story. I just need them to absorb it and to hear it and to feel it. And there's something intrinsically therapeutic in healing just about that. Because it was never the story to begin with. Okay? So here we have Baruch Hashem, two tools in one Biblical verse. King Solomon tells us, if you have a worry in your heart, those who want to look it up, this is Mishle, Proverbs, Yud Beis Chafhei, chapter 12, verse 25. the lev ish. If you have a worry in your heart, yashchena, subjugate it, put it in its place. What does it mean, put it in its place? Two opinions, yashchena midaitai. Forget about it. Go do something productive. Call it what it is. It's a made-up story. It's Hollywood magic. 
the other one, Rabbi Asi says, speak it out to others. The Tzemech Tzedek explains what means Achedim. People who are other, only in the sense that you, don't, you do not share the same body. By the way, that is the paradox. That's the paradox. Because otherwise, why does it even have to mention that they are Achedim? Achedim means others. It seems here that the whole point is that they're not so much others. They're, they're, they're united with you. That's the paradox. The paradox is, if I just needed someone who could feel what I'm feeling, I'd talk to myself. I feel what I'm feeling. How come it doesn't work? The paradox is the validation that someone who's not me can feel for me. So it's the best of both worlds. It's achedim, it's not me, and yet they feel what I'm feeling. And they offer their empathy, their non-judgmental empathy. They don't have to be eloquent, they don't have to have smart things to say, they just have to be empathetic, and that itself is healing. Okay, so those are two tools that we have for dealing with the anxiety, God willing, we'll see you a week from tonight, and we're going to talk more about some of the other ways that anxiety comes up and other approaches for dealing with it.